Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. Uh, it's an enormous workload uh, that we've taken on for our own organisations without many additional resources. And so we keep on having to remind governments that they've got to put the money on the table for some of these things to happen and continue to happen and evolve. But the important thing is being at the table, negotiating and just keeping them accountable as much as we can, which is what we agreed to do. A fresh approach to the Close the Gap strategy and the slow but steady vaccine rollout responding to COVID and the challenges of 2021. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Over the past year, Australia has had to cope with a number of life-changing issues. Tackling the threat of coronavirus while protecting our most vulnerable has galvanised the community and today a majority of the population has been vaxxed. But there were a number of hurdles to overcome to get to this point. Joining me to discuss that journey and the big ticket items of 2021 are Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jambana Institute, Noreen Young, and Industry Professor of Indigenous Policy, Lyndon Coombs. Lyndon, let's start with you. What would the Morrison government's report card look like for 2021? What subjects would they have aced and where would they have failed? Um, it wouldn't look very good, in my opinion. I think they'd be lucky to get maybe a C. It, it's hard to think of a major issue that they've taken on and done so successfully. You look at the sabre rattling with China, the debacle with France in terms of international relations, the Vax rollout where we're panhandling to Belgium and the UK for, for vaccines. Uh, we heard about the bushfire relief and that's not being rolled out. You know, those are some of the key headline issues which they've just objectively failed. I think they might point to the economy and the way that it's bounced back so far after COVID and look at COVID, I guess, overall. You know, I, I saw that the COVID response was largely driven by uh, state premiers and chief ministers and the government, federal government, sort of came in at, there at the end, a bit of uh, a bit of money for people out of work, and essentially towing the line that was sent, set by the uh, state premiers and chief minister. So I think a very lacklustre uh, performance this year on some of those really big key issues. What about you, Noreen? Would you have any areas where you would have given better marks than that? No, and I disagree about the economy. Obviously, wages is one of my interests and wages are the comparative lowest level they've been for a very long time. I think we're feeling the impacts of the kind of, well, the move away from centralised wage fixing um, to market-driven wage fixing. We have had a program of deunionisation that has meant that 
unions can't bargain in the same way um, for wages as they used to be able to. And so wages are in a very, very sore and sorry state and the economy can't bounce back without decent wages. Home ownership, which is obviously not the same for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but it could be um, the way that our people are moving to the middle class could in fact be better and bigger than it is now were it not so difficult for people. I, unemployment is really high and there is the, the rethink around jobs and whether people want substandard low-wage jobs. Low-wage jobs. So I think it's a F on every front. The, the pandemic couldn't even be managed in, in a decent way in, and it's just it was pretty hopeless really, which was the imperative for the year. The vaccine rollout was absolutely hopeless. As Lyndon said, the state premiers have done all the hard work. Um, so not wouldn't give them a, more than an F on anything. What about the report card for the federal Labor opposition? Um, well, I think they're coming out with good policies where they can and, and good responses, but they don't get a look in. We don't, in this media environment, we don't get to hear from them um, in the way they should, so we don't know what's going on. So, I, you know, I, I think that the opposition's doing well, but we don't hear about it. In terms of the COVID response, there was criticism over the vaccine rollout to First Nations communities. You've both touched on that, but let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Um, our communities were identified really early on as the more vulnerable population. Noreen, how would you sum up the Commonwealth's response uh, to First Nations needs in this space? Pathetic. We know that rural and regional communities were completely disorganised in terms of rollout. Well, the communities themselves weren't disorganised. The nachos have done incredibly well. And I see a lot of social media messaging, for example, from Bree Warrenar, because I've got friends there. And so I saw that community organise itself once the the threat of COVID became really big. What the federal government hasn't done well either is message to our communities. There's a lot of misinformation going into them and that hasn't been dealt with in any cohesive way by the government. I don't think they didn't anticipate that they would need a separate campaign for mob and it just hasn't worked very well and we know that because of the low vaccination rates. It's pretty easy to prove. So, no, not great. Lyndon, your traditional land is out in northwest New South Wales and, of course, we've seen, as Noreen mentioned, outbreaks in, in those some of the communities there. What are your thoughts on the vaccine rollout? Pretty similar to Noreen's. I, I was looking at Indigenous vaccination rates prior to covid so from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, and it was one of the few positive factors or indicators where Indigenous people were leading. I think Indigenous kids up to five, our vaccination rates were higher than the main population, and that's fairly rare in the scheme of things. So prior to COVID, there wasn't uh, this vaccine hesitancy or any issue with our communities getting vaccinated. Indeed, 
you know, our communities still talk about, have stories about smallpox and the dangers of diseases like this. So our communities were always there ready to go. Our uh, community-controlled health organisations have been wonderful, but they just haven't been supported. And while that, as Noreen said, that, that messaging wasn't going out, there was a lack of information and into that void um, came a lot of misinformation. And, and as you say, my family's out there in Brewarrina and seeing the things coming across on social media that people were putting out sort of really played on that delay in sort of official support and getting the vaccines out there. So that vacuum was allowed to to develop into something and never should have. So, you know, I, I think when people look back on this, we'll, they might say, well, Indigenous communities, for whatever reason, have been reluctant, but that's not the case. That hasn't been the case to this point. So we should, you know, remember that. New South Wales saw a change of leadership with Gladys Berejiklian stepping down due to an ICAC inquiry. Lyndon, what was your reaction? Um, yeah, I saw a lot of commentary around, you know, ICAC don't ask questions they don't know the answer to. And by the time you're in the dock responding to, you know, some pretty incisive uh, questioning from ICAC, the game's over. I think Premier Berejiklian knew that when it came up. And one of the more extraordinary things, I think, in, in that whole scenario was that not once but twice she said, of course we're going to throw money at electorates. That's what governments do. And for me, it didn't get as much coverage as I think it should have because it really shone a light on the way the culture of governments, particularly, I think, the coalition governments, there was no thought of what the need is of the community, only what is the political need here. And she said that in her time as Premier and in response to ICAC, saying that's what governments do. I found that extraordinary. And when she's coming at it from that angle, you just know there are a lot of other things that had to come out. What were your observations, Noreen? Same as Lyndon, I was appalled, call me naive, but I think that government funding should be distributed on merit. I was incredibly disappointed by the response of corporate white feminism to um, what transpired. The reactions were... You know, her relationship with Daryl Maguire is nobody's business. Um, she, uh, the question, the line of questioning by ICAC is outrageous. I think if you are the Premier and you are approving grants to the electorate of someone that you're in a relationship with um, that you haven't declared, that is absolutely the business of citizens and we should know about that. I just find it staggering that she even for one second thought that that was okay to do. And, you know, the more we find out about it, the more distasteful it is. A conservatorium and a clay shooting, I didn't even know what clay shooting was um, or whatever it is, clay target shooting, but in Wagga, like, how is that important in terms of uh, priorities for what should be spending in New South Wales? 
So, Noreen, what do you think the implications are for the calls for a federal ICAC? Do you think this will put additional pressure or do you think seeing that it's cost the head of a Premier here in New South Wales, there might be even more reluctance for politicians at that level to make themselves accountable in the same way? Well, clearly, as we've experienced, the line of the Liberal Party and the National Party is that it's terrible. Well, interestingly, we haven't heard much of that since um, the second appearance at the ICAC by the ex-Premier um, when the revelations about the relationship and the timing became more heightened, but we you know, we haven't heard that as much. But the line at the beginning about this was terrible, as I said, from corporate feminism um, and conservative Australia about the, the ICAC was terrible and I, I think that to me it just reinforces the need for a federal ICAC. Clearly it's normalised in the Liberal Party and given the behaviour of Bridget McKenzie, possibly the National Party as well, that grants are for electorate and electoral pork barrelling, and that's what they're there for, um, which they're not. And so that all needs thorough public examination and how that's played out in the term of this government. Um, it goes to... Issues like, for example, the politicisation of the AFP by Peter Dutton, the level of politicisation of refugee policy, I think we need to have a thorough examination of how this government's operated. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berrant and my guests tonight are Noreen Young and Lyndon Coombs. Well, sadly, there have been a number of high-profile Aboriginal deaths in custody over the past year. And in April, the Deaths Inside database placed the number at 474 since the Royal Commission 30 years ago. And since April, there have also been a number of further deaths with many still under investigation. And of course, these figures highlight the importance of the ongoing Black Lives Matter campaign in Australia and how it shines a light on First Nations rights in the criminal justice system. Lyndon, we saw such a large engagement with the Black Lives Matter movement during COVID. From your perspective, is that campaign still got momentum and what's its impact been? I think the impact is undeniable. There, there was a real shift in people's perspectives in the way that they viewed policing in the way that they interacted with police, you know, this kind of notion of inherent goodness of police, I think, was truly challenged by by a large chunk of people and I think the police felt that. And the police have always sort of presented themselves as uh, serving the community, being inherently good, doing the right thing, keeping the bad people away. Um, but with the Black Lives Matter movement, we started to hear stories of rampant corruption that were there before, but I, I think became louder and, and more prominent around uh, the deficiencies of policing, both here and in the United States and pretty much around the world. And that people were given permission almost to question police when, you know, we're told from you know, from when we're kids, that we listen to police, that they're trusted people, they're the ones we go to, and we never question them. Black Lives Matter movement changed that. And people are really questioning that. I do think that with COVID, um, there has been perhaps a lull in the movement in terms of momentum. But we've seen actually, again, devastatingly, an increase in Aboriginal deaths in custody. 
And I think there's going to be another response to that. So I think the movement is still there and I think there is still a groundswell of people really pushing these issues and us coming out of COVID, I think we're going to see increased protests and increased scrutiny on police. Noreen, another part of that campaigning is focused on the concept of defunding the police, which Mm. of course doesn't mean just don't give money to the police. It means redirect resources to other areas. What's your view about that strategy, how effective it is? And and does the, the name of the campaign mean that people aren't as engaged with it as they should be? I think people have, have a different experience of the police to what black and working class communities and, and some culturally diverse communities um, have, don't understand the terminology or why it's used. To me, it's broad ranging and it speaks to the diversion of funds around family and community violence, the diversion of funds around incarceration um, to a very broad spectrum of approaches in the community to how we organise this community. So I think probably, you know, the name does give give people a fairly visceral reaction. I think most people are raised to think that the police are good people that you can rely on. We know in this country that since settlement, the police have had a particular, particularly in New South Wales, a particular culture that derives from the nature of colonisation and probably derives from how it played itself out in Britain at the time that hasn't changed here. And so I I think it's more complex than simply defunding the police. And I think it requires a broad strategy. And And I think that some of the thinking is making its way into mainstream thinking. I know that um, for example, around family and community violence, the, the feminist views of the defund the police movement um, are being taken on, um, it appears to me, and thought about um, by the mainstream um, feminist anti-violence movement, not at great length, but I, I think that slowly um, concepts around defund the police are being taken on. Well, there was another update on the government's efforts to close the gap in key areas like health and education. In August, it announced a Close the Gap reboot, a new billion-dollar implementation plan along with 17 new targets. Lyndon, what did you make of the strategy? To me, it was more of the same. Um, I'm trying to remain optimistic and hopeful, particularly you know, with some of the uh, great Aboriginal people that are involved in trying to turn these um, very tough issues around, but it was um, a bit meh for me. It seems like this government has never taken on the challenge um, of making genuine change here. I think they they show up, they say the right things. Uh, The Prime Minister wears his Indigenous tie when he gives the report and then it's back to business as usual. And Indigenous Affairs has suffered um, from a, a range of issues that, you know, it's all all announcement, no delivery. And particularly with this government, we need to, you know, judge them by their actions, not by what they say at, at any point in time. So I do try to keep myself hopeful 
but I can't help but be cynical when it comes to this. Noreen, what about you? Hopeful, cynical, and are there any concerns or points of optimism for you in the new Close the Gap strategy? Small things for optimism. Certainly um, the coalition of peaks was a really positive and is a really positive development. And as Lyndon said, the calibre of Aboriginal people who are leading that um, gives me optimism. But this government's response um, leaves a lot to be desired, so not all that cheery. Um, In my own policy area, there's a lot of rethinking going on. Um, The rethinking around CDP participation is, is cause for optimism, but it's still absolutely isn't optimal. It'll be interesting to see there's been consultations over the last couple of months around employment more generally. I've been to one. It was run by an Aboriginal consultancy, which made me a bit more optimistic than I normally would be. I know that the ACTU have been um, consulted heavily around the employment piece as well. So there are small pockets, I suppose, of optimism, but the proof will be in the pudding and we haven't seen any of that yet. And I wonder very much, I think this minister has the best of intentions and I just wonder how much he can get through the Cabinet. Well, it's been a look at the year in review for Indigenous politics, but let's take a look a little bit more closer to home. Um, Noreen, when you look back on 2021, what will be your highlights and your most trying moment? Um, well, you won't be surprised to know it was my first schnitty after <laughs> No, um, I'm not surprised. Lockdown, that's a highlight. Was- Yep, that's the highlight. That was the first the first day that you could go to the pub. My partner booked for us all to go and have a schnitty as a family because we're that kind of family. So that was my highlight. Um, I think the whole of the second lockdown in Sydney was a low light and I don't want to sound like I'm spoilt but because, um, you know, I didn't get sick and I kept my job and my whole family kept our job. We're very, very fortunate Um, and we have somewhere to live and we're vaccinated and all of those great things, but it was hard. That second lockdown was really hard. It was long. Most of it was in winter. It just wasn't pleasant. And what about you, Lyndon? Highs and lows? The lows were definitely homeschooling of two (laughs) kids in primary school and the highlight was them going back to school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, look, you know, time with the family is really good um, and I learnt that time away from the family is good for everyone too. (laughs) So I did learn a lot. And, of course, it's felt a little bit gloomy looking back over the last year for a range of reasons. So hopefully leaving on an optimistic note, um, I'd like to ask you both what you're most looking forward to in 2022. I'll start with you, Lyndon. Yeah, I think I said before, as an introvert, the the lockdown, you know, sort of suited me a little bit, but even I missed people and, you know, get to travel for my job, um, which I really enjoy, Um, you know, going different places, meeting people who who we do the work for. So I'm really looking forward to that part of things um, opening up uh, in 2022. What about you, Noreen? 
Yeah, I think what lockdown taught us was not to take anything for granted. So, um, you know, I didn't see my kids for all that time of second lockdown. I, you know, didn't see family. Um, it's uh, There could be days when I wouldn't see any mob. I'd just be at home by myself and, you know, my husband's not Aboriginal, so I'd I, you know, just wouldn't I'd talk to my kids on the phone, but of course we weren't going into the office, which, you know, obviously that's a very safe environment. Um, so not to take anything for granted and I won't be in 2022 and I just am hanging out for a saltwater summer with lots of beach and lots of sun. Well, that sounds great and that sounds very optimistic. Um, I want to thank you both for, for being here this evening and, and doing our big year in review. You've, of course, been two of our favourite commentators throughout the year, so it's great to get your broader perspective and I hope you'll both continue to come back and give us your thoughts through 2022. Thank you. Thanks for having me. My guests this evening have been Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jumbana Institute, Noreen Young, and Industry Professor of Indigenous Policy, Lyndon Coons. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, Arnie Pat Turner joins me to reflect on the federal government's plan to progress the Close the Gap strategy, as well as community-controlled responses to the COVID pandemic. But before we get into that, let's have some music. This track is by Dan Sultan and is taken from his album Homemade Biscuits. It's called Caroline. to believe 
Dan Sultan there with the track Caroline. The federal government this year announced a new approach to closing the gap between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations and the rest of the community. The strategy included a $1 billion administrative plan and a further 17 targets to strive towards. It also incorporated a new redress scheme for stolen generation survivors in the Northern Territory, the ACT and Jarvis Bay Territory. But despite the renewed focus, concerns have been raised over worsening suicide rates in First Nations communities and the growing number of our children caught up in the out-of-home care system. Efforts to address the Close the Gap targets have been the focus of a more collaborative approach between the government and the Coalition of Peak Aboriginal Community Controlled Organisations since 2019. 
Auntie Pat Turner is the lead convener of the coalition, as well as the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO. Auntie Pat, welcome back to Speaking Out. My pleasure. Always good to be with you. The focus of this year's Close the Gap report was leadership and legacy through crisis, which of course was a reflection on our path through dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. What are your thoughts on the effectiveness of the vaccine rollout for First Nations communities? Well, I think overall our community control sector has done pretty well. I'm a bit concerned that in the areas that you know weren't directly affected by COVID, that a bit of complacency crept in and people thought, no, we don't have to get vaccinated, we haven't got COVID in our area. But it's now proving with the outbreak in the Northern Territory that everyone needs to get vaccinated as soon as possible. If people want to avoid serious illness and hospitalisation or even death. So the answer to that is to get vaccinated. So supply is not an issue. Supply has been available on request. So if our archos advise us the quantity and other supports around administering the vaccines like personal protection equipment or other support staff that they need, community engagement officers or whatever, they need to advise us and we have supported them to the fullest extent possible. So I think we've done a good job. In the areas that are run by state government clinics, I'm afraid to say that I'm not as confident that they have done as well and they really need to pick up their game. Arnie Pat, as we've spoken throughout the year and as you've just mentioned, where the response to COVID has been most effective is when it's community controlled. Now, I know that you've spoken a lot about that and I know that I've seen it through my work, but I know for a lot of our listeners, they might not be quite aware of just what a difference the community-controlled sector is making. So I wonder if you can just give us your reflections on why that's been such an important component of an effective COVID response and what we've really learnt through this period about the effectiveness of community control. Well, we highlighted the dangers of the pandemic very early. As soon as we had a positive diagnosis of coronavirus in Australia when a passenger arrived in Melbourne from Wuhan, I knew that this was going to be a problem. And for Aboriginal communities, in March, I went public and said that if the coronavirus into Aboriginal communities, it will spread like wildfire, which is proven to be the case. And so why it has taken people so long to just accept the advice that we have given is beyond me. But what the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Service is good at is establishing a good relationship with the client population, the people who use our Aboriginal Health Services, and make sure that they share with them as much information about coronavirus and why it's important for people to practice all the public health measures as they can and to get vaccinated. So we've now got people going door to door in a num- quite a number of our health services because there's been this complacency and hesitancy. There's been a lot of really misleading, wrong information on social media and that's been very concerning. And you can't stop that. You can try to counter it with better messaging and our services have been encouraged to do that because they know how to 
frame things in the local vernacular so that it makes it more meaningful to the listening audience in their areas. So I think it's the existing relationship that our services have with the community and the clients. I think it's that they're trusted, they're treated with respect. You know, cultural respect and cultural safety are key elements of our service provision in the comprehensive primary health care model that we deliver in the main. And, you know, I think that people have really understood that and accepted that. So there's a lot more trust between us and the patients that we have. And that's all good well for us to be able to get through to our people the importance of looking after themselves during COVID and getting the vaccinations. The response to the threat of COVID overshadowed a lot of the really great work you do in your capacity as lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks. And that, of course, brings us back to the Closing the Gap strategy. Overall, Auntie Pat, what's your impression of how it's going? Slowly but surely is what I would say at this point. But things have to ramp up now, Larissa. So we've had our first round of implementation plan, of which the Coalition of Peaks has done an independent analysis of every one of them. We will be workshopping the findings with the government so that they understand clearly what the findings are and how they can improve in their next iteration. So every year states have to put out an implementation plan and an annual report against that. And they have to be publicly available documents so that people can monitor it themselves and the public can know what governments have committed to. So a bit disappointing, the first round, because a lot of existing work that's already been underway is reflected in those in the first plan, but hopefully we will start to see a move to new initiatives and, you know, a real movement in shared decision-making arrangements and partnerships with our people directly, where our people can negotiate with government about how they want what particular priorities responded to, uh, building and strengthening the Aboriginal community-controlled sector and enabling greater self-determination for our people. It's going to take a bit longer on the third one, but it's one that is really important, and that's the ensuring that government agencies who interact with our people are culturally respectful and safe through all their engagement, and that means organisations like hospitals and police and corrections and out-of-care home, out-of-home care, housing authorities and so on and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot of work to do there, but there's a lot of our people who know uh, why that's so important and can assist those agencies to transform. And the fourth priority reform, of course, is the availability of data and information to local organisations and communities to make informed decisions in their negotiations with government. So, um, you know, we'll really have to start putting those measures and see that they're being incorporated in the way that governments are responding to the provisions in the national agreement and fulfilling their obligations under the national agreement. It's been an amazing transition, really, that a lot of people wouldn't have observed about what a difference it's made to actually have the Coalition of Pegs at the table, Annie Pat? Yes, it has. And Uh, It's an enormous workload uh, that we've taken on for our own organisations without many additional resources. And so we keep on having to remind governments that 
they've got to put the money on the table for some of these things to happen and continue to happen and evolve. But the important thing is being at the table, negotiating and just keeping them accountable as much as we can, which is what we agreed to do. Another area of concern for our communities this year has been a proposal by the federal government to tighten identification laws around the voting process. What issues does this raise for you, Auntie Pat? Well, my, my chairman put out a press, chairperson put out a press release on that, absolutely condemning the intent of the legislation. Where I mean, it's not as though our people walk around with ID on them and looks to us like a disenfranchisement of our people, especially in remote areas. And, uh, you know, so I think that uh, an appalling, unnecessary piece of legislation, voter fraud in Australia is not an issue. The Australian Electoral Commission has confirmed that time and time again. So why would you put a measure like that in? Why wouldn't you spend your time educating the Australian public about the voting system and how to make your vote count and to make sure that every eligible Australian over the year, over the age of 18 is enrolled so that they can uh, cast their ballot. But measures that go towards alienating people from their democratic right to cast their vote and their actual requirement, because voting is compulsory in Australia, so you turn up to vote, uh, you have to show your ID, which you don't carry, or you don't have, uh, and so are you then penalised for not voting? I mean, there's so many things that are wrong with this bill, and we are dead against it. And we uh, hope that everyone takes notice and objects to it as strongly as we do. This legislation's been compared to the similar process in the US around voter registrations, and that has been just one part of what's been seen as an ongoing attack on democracy in the United States. I know you always have your eye on what's happening around the world as well. What are your thoughts on what you've seen in relation to the health of American democracy over the last 12 months? I think Western democracies, you know, I mean, I look across the world and I thank God for Angela Merkel and her sensible leadership in Germany, which she's now about to vacate. And I just wish that we had more women leading countries and bringing, you know, the caring for the people and the integrity of democracies being at the centre of the work of government. And I just think that it's failing everywhere. I think Australian politics has deteriorated into a, you know, it's just shocking. So political point scoring, rotting the system in terms of programs that are, you know, basically pork barrelling. And even though people say, oh, we've always put up with a bit of that and we all understand that everyone does it. And, but that doesn't mean to say it's acceptable. And I think that, you know, that's seen the rise in the number of independents nominating. And interestingly, the number of independents who are nominating for the next federal election, a lot of them are women who don't want to be bound to the parties. So I mean, it's very hard to get elected into the House of Representatives if you're not a member of a major party. But the outcome of this next election is going to be very interesting indeed, because I think it might show a fair difference. But I think really, I'm ashamed of the way Australian governments are behaving. And, you know, they really need to grow up and uh, and 
act in the best interests of the public that they're elected to serve. Well, it is part of our annual tradition of, of having you on our last show of the year for our year in review through Arnie Pat's eyes, uh, that we do get you to give a little bit of a report card or a, a grade to both the government and the Labor opposition in this case for how they've gone through the year. And I think you've given us a bit of a hint about how you might score on that. But overall, what would the report card from you look like on the Morrison government for this year? Well, I think overall, the federal government started the handling of the COVID uh, pandemic very well. And I think the investments that were made for JobKeeper, for example, were absolutely essential, even though we had so many. And the increase in uh, the amount of money that Centrelink recipients, you know, was practically doubled, made a difference to people surviving uh, without access to full-time employment. I thought they were good initiatives. Uh, I think the withdrawal of of the support to Centrelink recipients has been very sad and uh, and there's still not a realistic amount of money paid to our poorest and our most vulnerable members of our society. I think that the companies that profited from receiving JobSeeker when they weren't supposed to uh, or to hang their heads in shame because there's no legal requirement for them to repay that money, but it would certainly help the bottom line of the Australian government's deficit if they did repay that money. So you've got all these multi-million uh, heirs uh, that have profiteered off of this, and I think that's wrong. I think it's a, a real mark against corporate Australia. So I think that... Uh, but the state premiers were the ones in the end that had been delegated so much of the responsibility for the handling of COVID. And that's been mixed, I think, with the closing of borders. And, you know, we feel like we've got a great separation across our uh, federation because of that. And I hope that that is brought to an end sooner rather than later. And, you know, I think that those states like Queensland and New South Wales and even the Territory sat on its hands a bit to get our people vaccinated, all our people. Because if you live in a country town, you've got a large Aboriginal presence, you know, you know everybody in the town, white, black or brindle, everyone needs to be vaccinated. So, you know, there's got to be more cooperation in those areas. I'm, you know, talking a lot about the pandemic. I think the, the one area that really has surprised me has been the rate of increase in housing prices and I think that there's been a run on housing by investors rather than real you know family units and the cost of housing is just outrageous um, and I hope when the uh, you know there's a, there's a rise in housing uh, prices and there's a fall and I hope when the fall comes we don't see all those people who've mortgaged themselves to the hills uh, having to uh, force sales and lose considerably. Uh, in terms of their, you know, uh, investing in the Australian dream. I don't think that's been handled well, really, and I don't think governments are doing enough in relation to social housing. So a report card uh, for the Morrison government, I was doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, etc. I'd say probably a C plus uh, because of how well they did on the pandemic, but how badly other things have been let slip. 
Um, and I think that the climate change agenda is being treated um, a bit too flippantly. I'd like that to be seen, to be taken more seriously. So factors of leaving the vulnerable as vulnerable as they've ever been in terms of income support and uh, climate change, as well as the government has done on the COVID, you know, riding COVID through, still not out of the woods. I hope that they don't drop the ball because predictions are that come March next year, we'll have another upswing in COVID cases as we go into winter. So that's my assessment of the Morrison government. Albanese, really interesting to watch the opposition. I think there are many instances where they could have come out and supported First Nations issues a lot stronger and uh, and they could have raised those issues a lot more often in the parliament. And I'm pretty disappointed about that. So, you know, Aboriginal housing should have been raised at every opportunity, the overcrowding, and how many decades have we been saying that as Aboriginal leaders, that, you know, from the community and, and organisational level? You know, every community can point to the need for overcoming the stress on our housing. I think that Labor could have and should do a lot more in that regard. The heritage legislation uh, protection, while they've been part of, a, you know, the inquiry in the federal government, and uh, there's a very good report as a result of that uh, federal government inquiry, um, you know, we really need to, to see... Uh, that there are a lot of the recommendations brought to fruition. Not a good sign when you see the Western Australian government tabling their bills uh, in Parliament for heritage protection and Aboriginal groups having a glimpse at it before it's introduced to the Parliament tomorrow without the safeguards that Aboriginal people uh, are wanting. The publicity, the spin from the government is that there will be greater safeguards, but whether they satisfy native title interests has yet to be seen because I haven't seen the provisions of the bill and I'm sure many others haven't either. And especially the key people in in Western Australia, the TOs themselves. Arnie, Pat, just um, sort of final bit of our time with you. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps reflect more personally just from your your travels through the year, the very tough year that's been, the very busy year that's been, but from your personal perspective, what was your low point and your high point? Well, my low point was when COVID hit Wilcannia, no doubt about that, because I had warned governments about this. And so had local Aboriginal people like um, Bob Davies had written to governments last year in May, in March, specifically raising Wilcannia. I also raised it in a submission uh, to the COVID uh, inquiry in July last year and I used two community case studies. One was Yarrabah and one was Wilcannia. And everything I said proved to be the case. Um, so you wonder what, you know, what you've got to do to convince people about the need for them to get in early. And, you know, I was disappointed with the police commissioner's refusal to close communities in uh, in uh, New South Wales, particularly when leaders had asked for Wilcannia to be closed to the general public, you know. Um, I mean, if people could have just driven straight through and not been able to stop, that would have helped, you know. But I think the low point was Wilcannia and, and the deaths that came 
uh, because up until the outbreak in New South Wales, we had 153 infections of COVID and no deaths. No deaths until, you know, it hit Western New South Wales. And and look at, the, you know, the figures now, I just can't remember them off the top of my head. And my high point was when I took two weeks leave recently because I was just so exhausted. <laughs> well, I hope when you do your year in review of 2022, you've had a little bit more time for yourself. You do so much good work and you're such a precious resource in the community. We do need you to look after yourself and you're always giving us that good advice. But just finally, what is are you most looking forward to in 2022? Well, I'm looking forward to our people being as vaccinated as highly as possible, the numbers, and I'm looking forward to the new year feeling refreshed and ready to take on uh, a much more open Australia where all families can be united and we can get back to a more normal type of lifestyle that would be most welcome. Arnie Pat, you're one of our absolute favourite, wisest voices in Indigenous Australia and we're very grateful to have your insights tonight. So thank you so much for giving us some time, your very precious, valuable time when you are so busy and working so hard and, you know, just it's just always wonderful to be able to finish the year with your wisdom. Thank you so much for all the important work that you do. My pleasure, Larissa, and let me wish all of the listeners a very happy Christmas and a fantastic new year and to you and your staff as well. Thank you, Arnie Pat. Arnie Pat Turner is the lead convener of the Coalition of Peaks as well as the CEO of the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, NACHO. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.